Hey guys, welcome back to Pucks and Pages. My name is Steven, that was my amazing wife Liberty. And we're a married couple with vastly different interests. Steven is a sports enthusiast and I am a bookworm. To say the least. And we try to get each other to enjoy our hobbies through the latest news in books and sports. This episode is going to be about the book news in the world. Finally. Your favorite. We spent so long talking about sports last time. It seemed like it was absolutely endless, so we apologize if it just droned on and on. It actually wasn't our longest episode, it just felt like it went on forever. <laughs> I say that as the not sports person. Yeah. For book news, there wasn't a lot that happened this week, but I'm okay with that because we have a lot of October releases to discuss. Fantastic. So, for the first part of the news, the American Ballet Theater released two children's books on September 22nd. They're called B is for Ballet and Boys Dance. Both are available on Amazon. I tried to find other places where they had it, and I didn't see it anywhere, so I don't know if they're just doing Amazon or it'll get released somewhere else later on. That's kind of weird. So they're just like uh, Amazon Prime special, almost. I don't know. But it's the first of many books that are going to come out in this partnership between the American Ballet Theater and Random House. It's multiple years, multiple books every year. This one, I think, technically came out later than scheduled just because of everything happening in the world. Gestures broadly. Because pandemic. Right. Yeah. Both books are written by John Robert Allman. And B is for Ballet is an alphabet book using ballet terms, which is cute if you have like a little kid. Oh, so it's like a children's book then? Yeah, both are children's books. I thought I had said that. And the second one, Boys Dance, is about a group of boys in a dance class. And it's basically just trying to, oh no, in the, I don't want to call it a stigma, but like the thing that guys aren't supposed to be in the ballet. Yeah, trying to make it like a little more masculine, you think? Yeah, and it's about tearing down the walls that stand between boys and dance, so it's really cute. Good for any young readers you might have. That might be interested in the world of ballet and indoor dance. Yeah. And then the one thing that I found the most interesting this week, and I believe I discussed it with you during the week, they found some stolen books in Romania. Yeah, you were telling me a little bit about that. The stolen books are worth $3.5 million, and among the books were first edition works by Galileo, Isaac Newton, Francisco Goya, and other rare books. That's pretty crazy. Right? Like, Like, you think of these people and, like, they're just a figure in your mind, but no, their things actually exist. Yeah, like, I couldn't fathom stumbling upon an Isaac Newton book. Yeah. I feel like that's, like, super rare. The Galileo book is the one that throws me. Like, that was a real person? I'm shocked. Well, you shouldn't be that (laughs) shocked, let's be honest. Not that bad. (laughs) The books were stolen back in 2017 when they were en route to Las Vegas for a specialist book auction. That totally sounds like some type of, like, movie plot. Right? It's like a heist movie. Yeah, exactly. The police believe that the Klamparu crime group from Romania is connected to the crime, and they say this based on DNA evidence that they have. Basically, they found a car that was used for this, and everything was wiped down, but I guess someone forgot to wipe down their headrest, and so they found one of the hairs that had fallen off their head and took the DNA from that. Rookie move. Rookie move. Rookie mistake. It must be the new guy. Yeah, clearly. And he's fired. But it took him a while to find these books, and they were actually buried underneath, like, this slab of concrete, and I don't remember where this house was, but it was somewhere in Europe. 
That's so weird that they're burying it under concrete. It's not a dead body you're trying to hide or something, you know. It's like a... It's a lot of money, though. Priceless book. And, you know, according to all these heist movies and books and all that, you wouldn't want to try to get rid of that too quickly. You'd want to wait a few years for the heat to die. Yeah, kind of drop off the radar so that you can fence them properly. But that's just according to things I've seen and read. Yeah. Not actual reality of being a crime lord or anything like that. It's, it's kind of like that show, what was it, uh, White Collar that we used to watch on Netflix. Oh, yeah, it's yeah, been a, a while bit, since yeah. I've seen that. And Mariah Carey's memoir will have come out by the time this is released on September 29th is when the book's coming out. And it's going to be called The Meaning of Mariah Carey. I don't know what that title means. I've always thought it's weird that memoirs are coming out like before somebody passes away. Like I feel like... Well, it's autobiographical. It's not someone doing a biography of her. So she kind of has to be alive to write it. Gotcha. But it's supposed to be an unfiltered look at her life, and I guess she, according to early buzz about the book, she's trying to take back the narrative of her life, I guess. I don't know what this means. It sounds like a buzzword sort of BS thing. I think there's a lot of stuff about Mariah Carey in the world, like popular opinions about her and stuff like that, so maybe that's what she's trying to take back and just say, I'm a real person with a real life doing my real job. I wasn't just the person that married a really young Nick Cannon. Oh my god, I remember that now. I had forgotten. It'll probably be in the memoir. Probably. (laughs) You would think. But there wasn't a lot about this, so I don't know if they're having a lot of people read this early, because I get a lot of arcs, so I can basically just pump up people to want to read this book that I've been given for free. Yeah, whether it be like your Goodreads reviews or us talking about it here on the podcast. So Right, and Instagram and everything that comes with that. Right. So I would think she would have done that too, but the first time I even found out about this was last week. Yeah. So I don't know why there's not a lot of people reading it in advance, but there's really not. There's not a lot about this book right now. Mariah Carey's a pretty famous person, though, so, like, there's a chance that it just blows up naturally, like... Right. It could sell really well, or there's something in there that makes it super scandalous that people want to read, or just her talking badly about another singer, actor, or something. Right. And then the last piece of book news that I have, because, like I said, it's a very short week for that. A new book has been published to try to help ease children's fear about online learning. So if you have really little kids who have to learn via Zoom or however they're doing their virtual learning, they could read this first and sort of help them see what it's supposed to be like and everything's okay. Yeah, it's. I could kind of see how it could be a little scary considering like as a kid you're so used to being face-to-face and like at a young age really. It's just that's how you grow you know, is by being around other people and other children. So like. Right. And they're not at the point yet where they've learned how they learn. Yeah. So they don't know what's the best way for them to learn as a student. Yeah. So I think having something like that will help. And in the book, well, first of all, the book is called Maddie Goes to Virtual School by Rob Morgan with art by Noel Mugavri, Mugaviri, maybe? Yeah. It had published in August, but it's just now getting a lot of attention because people are starting to send their kids back to school. And it tells the story of Maddie, a young girl who learns that she's going to be staying home on her first day of school. 
And so it's sort of, you have this fear that she has about it and then how her parents try to help her cope with it and explaining it to her. And I think it's just a vehicle to help people have these conversations with their younger children. Yeah, I I can see the necessity of a book like this. It makes sense, obviously, considering the current situation everything's in. Obviously, here in Texas, kids are, certain districts are going back to school and other county districts are not. Right, it really just depends on where you live, how necessary this book is, but I think it's it's a probably really short and easy read and probably something you can get through with your kid in one afternoon and just say, look, this is what's happening, this is what we're doing, and see Maddie went through that too because they're seeing someone do what they have to do. It could even be good for like some university students who aren't like really accepting it well, maybe a little bit, like just because I you know I think there are other books that are coming out about having this sort of virtual learning going on that would be more age appropriate that would be more age appropriate (laughs) for them yeah but i don't know i think it's a good starting point for any family that has young students yeah it's been something that's been coming up obviously even in my workplace like i have worked with a lot of college student age people yeah and some of them are even like taking courses while they're on their lunch yeah. You know, and you're like walking through the back and like, hey, everybody, how's it going? And, <laughs> you know, while you're at work. So that's funny. Yeah. So like I could see the fear of that obviously being out of school. I really I don't know how it really is affecting people personally. but Well, I took online classes while I was going to school especially in the summer. So when I was in college, the thing that a lot of people didn't realize is online classes are inherently harder than face-to-face classes. So I think you're going to have a lot of even young children all the way up through college, people adjusting to that. And it could just be that I'm the type of learner who has to have that face-to-face interaction, or it could just be that that's the way it is because you have to put in more work to show you know what you're talking about. Right. So the book's probably good for that sort of conversation. Yeah, definitely. But the main news story this week is all the new releases that I am super excited for. That's awesome. I don't really have any news like that. I wish I did. (laughs) Well, you're still on the Harry Potter train probably until the end of the year, but... Hopefully not till the end of the year, but, Oh, I know how your work gets in November and December. I'm assuming till the end of the year. Yeah. But I got, how many is it? Five arcs that have books coming out in October. So I've got ratings for them and everything. And then two that I haven't read yet because I just read the first ones like this month or the month before. So the first book is I Hope You're Listening by Tom Ryan. That comes out October 6th. I rated it four stars because it's a genre that I normally don't like to dive into. It's mystery, thriller, horror in that sort of combined genre. And it's about a girl who, when she is a little girl, she and her friend are playing in the woods and someone kidnaps her friend and she's the one who's left behind. And so she's dealing with like the guilt and trying to cope with the fact that she's left behind, she survived, her friend didn't survive, and turns to true crime to sort of alleviate that guilt and runs a true crime podcast where they basically do armchair detective work is what I think they're technically called, where they're trying to solve the case from the outside. Gotcha. And so she will do multiple episodes to try to solve a case, and if that case gets solved, move on to another one and stuff like that. 
and it was really interesting and also there was a bit of a culty moment in there very briefly that I enjoyed because cults interest me because I'm weird like that or at least you know <laughs> yeah and everyone listening knows as well the good news is this isn't a murderer style like let's solve it podcast so you know no pressure guys you just have to listen <laughs> And then the second arc that is on my list is In a Holidays by Christina Lauren, the writing duo. That also comes out on October 6th. I rated it 4.5 stars. Like, it's almost as high as you can go. But considering it's a contemporary, I can't give it 5 stars. I just can't. I just don't understand why you can't give a book that's just different than the way you normally like books to just be like, well, you know what? This is the best contemporary I've probably read. Maybe I I should give it a five star. I could give it five stars. I don't think it's worthy of five stars. Got it. See, now that's different. Because I think fantasy books are inherently harder than contemporary books. And so contemporary books don't deserve five stars. Because it didn't make your brain work as hard? I guess. I don't That doesn't make any sense to me. Why are you trying to make me analyze how my brain works? That's a mistake. So that's for a different podcast anyways. (laughs) In a Holidays is about a girl who is having her last Christmas at the family cabin with all the family friends. So it's three families getting together every year at this Utah cabin. And this is going to be the last year because they have to sell it because they can't afford to keep it anymore. And then on her way home, she gets in a car accident and suddenly she's reliving the whole experience all over again. And accidents keep happening, so she has to keep reliving it over and over each time an accident happens. And so it's like Groundhog's Day, but it's during Christmas, so I like it better. And there's a little bit of a romance because this is Christina Lauren. It was really good. I really enjoyed it. It's perfect for the holiday time if you want to pick something up in like November, December. Right. The third book is also a kind of romance contemporary. It's The Code for Love and Heartbreak by Jillian Cantor, which is also out on October 6th. I rated it four stars. Again, really good, but it's just a contemporary is my thing. (laughs) So there we are. Maybe I need a better rating system. But you need like a contemporary rating system. So you're like, listen, this is a five star on the contemporary scale, but So I just overall... need multiple scales is what needs to happen. Yeah, like for each to... genre has their own scale. Yeah. And then just like you're like, listen, this is the contemporary scale and on the overall scale, it's a four point five. It's rare that I think you come up with a genius thing in this podcast, but I think you have. Yes. I've but done it. The Code for Love and Heartbreak is about a girl in her senior year of high school, and she's really introverted, and she does coding club every day after school. So she's in a group, but it's all stuff that she does on her own. Like, she's working with the code on her computer around other people who are also on their computers. So she's still introverted, even though she's in this coding club. Right. And her sister, who is leaving to go to college in a few days, recommends that she codes herself a boyfriend. And that sparks her idea for the coding club's group project for the competition that they have every year. And it's basically an app that will find you your perfect statistical match at that school. And so she sort of runs into some faux pas that she makes while she's trying to do this. And you've got some guys who are trying to weasel the app to work in their favor and get them what they want. And it ends up being really cute and sweet. And it reminds me a lot of rom-coms from the 90s. So it was really good. Again, I just think I don't give it five stars because it's a contemporary. That's the only flaw. 
We'll work on that uh, new scale this week at some point. It'll be the next big thing, I swear. Yep. Another arc I got, this one actually is a fantasy, so it has the possibility of getting to that five-star rating. Just based on the fact that you said that leads me to believe it's not going to get a five-star rating. Correct. It's A Golden Fury by Samantha Coho, I think is how you say her name. It comes out October 13th, and I rated it three stars. So all these contemporaries have done better than this one fantasy novel so far. Hmm. It is possible. But it's about a girl who in the, I believe it was 18th century, is trying to help her mother create the Philosopher's Stone through alchemy. And everything just seemed way too impossible. And duh, that's how most fantasies work. But... So say that's it, kind of in the name. It's past the point where you can suspend your disbelief. It's just, it takes it too far. And Well, maybe I, your disbelief just doesn't go far enough. Have you ever thought about that? It might be a personal problem. Yeah. That is also possible. Because, like, it could be perfect for some people. Who knows? It could be. I have very specific taste, obviously. But I didn't like the way that the plot worked and each thing was just a step that had to be taken in order to get to a certain point. It's not... It didn't feel natural. Gotcha. It felt like she put this here for a specific purpose so we could achieve A, B, and C and then move on to the next point. So that's why it's three stars. I don't know if it's just the fact that I could basically see her fingerprints in the story is how I put it. Like, if I can see why you're doing what you're doing, I don't think you're doing it right. And again, that might just be my specific perspective and it could just be a me thing. And then the last arc, so the last one on this list that I've read, is Christmas Wishes by Sue Moorcroft, coming out October 29th, so the very end of the month, perfect time to get into the Christmassy mood. Rated that one three stars. So on a contemporary scale, it's not that bad, because in my regular scale, it only goes up to like a 4, 4.5. So yeah. slightly better than that fantasy so novel. like a three and a half, maybe a four. On a contemporary novel scale, Okay. if we're going to talk about that. But it's basically supposed to be a second chance romance where this girl and this guy who went to high school together and had gone separate ways afterward suddenly meet up again in the same small town because circumstances in life have made it so they have to go back home and they have no other choice. And then romance happens. And it starts out with her in another country and she has her own shop and her boyfriend and all of that is fine. For him, I don't like that side of the story because it's dual perspective hers and his and for his he's a single father so you're already gonna have this empathy for him but then the mother of his child had cheated on him when they were married and had a kid with someone else and then she's a drunk who's neglecting her kid and automatically that brings it down at least a star for gotcha. me because i don't like animal neglect and i don't like child neglect I know that this was done so you can empathize with him so that he has to move. Like, the whole point is he has to move because of this kid. And I get that it works for the plot and it works for how the reader feels about this guy. I didn't want to see it. And you see multiple scenes of that happening. And I just, the whole time, wanted to run the other way and did not enjoy it. So the fact that he even got up to a three star at that point is kind of a big deal. Because it was reaching pretty low at that point when he finally got her out of that situation. Right. But the rest of it's really good. It's really Christmassy. And the romance feels authentic. Like it feels like a real situation that could happen. And not just like a rom-com. And so that was nice. 
And you got to see character development, not just for him because of his whole situation, but you also got it for her being able to learn how to stand up for herself once that now ex-boyfriend is out of the picture. So that was nice to see. Can imagine. And then the first of the two that I have not yet read that are coming out in October is Mistletoe and Mr. Wright by Sarah Morgenthaler. And it comes out on October 6th, so next week. And it's the second book in a companion series about basically these people living in Alaska and their small town. And I read the first one, I want to say it was in August, but September is blending together with August in my brain. So who knows? It did go by pretty quick. Yeah. And I liked the first one a lot. I thought there was opportunity for side characters to be developed. And then I turned around and saw, oh, this is part of a series. That's where the side characters are getting developed. So one of the side characters I really liked in the first book is getting her own storyline in the second book. Plus, it sounds like it's going to be Christmassy. It's mistletoe. And I always love some Christmas. So I'm looking to pick that up hopefully next week. And then the second one has almost the completely opposite vibes because it is going to be In the Study with the Wrench, which is the second book in the Clue Mystery series by Diana Peterfrund. Which you just recently started. I literally just read that one last week, I want to say, and loved it. So this next one comes out on October 13th. I'm going to try to pick it up when it comes out, not hold off too far into the month. Because in my brain, Christmas is like September 1st to October 21st. And then you get a week and a half-ish of Halloween. And then it's Christmas again until the end of the year. I was going to say, how are you at Christmas before Halloween happens? And then you're like, oh, but then there's a little bit of Halloween. There's a break in there. So small one. And basically, then it's September, right back to Christmas. September to December is all Christmas. And then you get like a week and a half of Halloween vibes. You get a, a week and a half Halloween break. Yeah. Okay. So it's going to be pretty good. What I'm assuming the next one is going to do, so the second one in the series is going to do, is all the students who had to experience the horror of what happened in the first one come back to the school and then someone else gets murdered. Well, it's a murder mystery series, so and yeah, somebody would have to be murdered. I think it's going to in the study with the wrench. I doubt it. Well, the title... That would be kind of leading on the, the plot The title is In the Study with the Wrench, and in the first book, it was called In the Hall with the Knife, and that's how they died, so... I feel like at that point, though, anybody that would be in the hall would be like, here it comes. Well, you don't ever see the murder happen in the first one, and the body isn't found there, so at first you're thinking, oh, the title is just a silly title having to do with the Clue board game, but then it turns out where you find the body is not where the body became the body, where it got murdered. But those are the main ones I'm excited about. There are other sort of mystery thriller horrors coming out in October, but they're all pretty much out of my wheelhouse because I have a very small one for mystery thriller horror. That's not a genre or a mixed genre that I really like. There are certain like criteria you have to hit for me to enjoy it. Yeah. So yeah, we're finding out I'm pretty picky when it comes to books. Which I kind of do, but I didn't quite know that it was this far in depth. Listen... At least I read. Yeah. But what I've read this past week is mostly Harry Potter and the Order of Phoenix because that's a freaking brick. 
Yeah, we pretty much both crammed the last portions of it in this week. I crammed all of it into this last week, but yes. Yes. And it finished off my Bogopolithon, because I've been participating in that for the month of September. And it was my role number two disability rep, which I said, Harry has PTSD. So like whether it's stated on the page or not, in my mind, he has PTSD in this book. So that's the disability rep for me. I'm not going to say the author's name or star rating because here we are. But I did manage to cram in Tunnel of Bones by Victoria Schwab into the last end of the week. And I rated that four stars. It's a backlist book from 2019 and it's a continuation of the Cassidy Blake series. So basically this is a middle grade book about a girl who can see ghosts and is currently on a trip with her family to record for their television show about ghost hunters. So she can see ghosts and they can't. And she knows this because she has a ghost best friend that they can't see. I feel like that would be a fun series to read, but at the same time, it's just like, how do you call yourself ghost hunters if your own daughter has a ghost friend that really follows you idiots around everywhere? Their dynamic works really well because she's seeing ghosts and experiencing it, and then they don't have a clue. But (laughs) it's also really good because the dad is like taking the historical like cynical eye on it like clearly ghosts aren't real and here's the history of the place and here are the ghost stories and here's why people feel this way but But he makes a living being a ghost hunter yeah but the mom is the one who actually thinks that ghosts are real and all that sort of thing so they have this dynamic on their show that's really cute so kind of like us with books and sports kind of like i know books are real but (laughs) i was gonna say both of those are real things but It's really easy to read, obviously, because middle grade is not my age range, but it's also really cute and fun and like you're interested the whole time. And I think because I know it's a middle grade, I know everything's going to be fine. So this is like a good book to put like in between fantasy or stuff that's hard to read or you're more emotionally invested in. Right. The one fault that I really found in this one is that it feels a little like she's speaking down to her audience and kind of she has to because like this book is set in Paris. We've been to Paris. So like all the things that get explained about Paris and how Paris works, we already know. I don't think I learned any new information about Paris. Maybe where they stayed in that hotel. But outside of that, nothing else. So I think that's just a me problem and it's got nothing to do with the writing i think it's perfect for middle grade obviously you've got to realize most people probably haven't been to paris yes most people in the world have not been to paris but like i said that's a me thing not the book's problem yeah and i think because i studied french in high school there are moments where she explains how words are supposed to be said yeah and it's just like I already said it like that in my head before you went into the explanation. Now I'm distracted. So for me, it's just a me thing. I know that's just a me thing, but it did decrease my enjoyment. And that's not Victoria Schwab's fault yeah. at all. Because realistically, she's explaining it for other people that haven't been there. Because obviously, well, if you don't grade. know those things, yeah. Yeah, so uh, it's like not it's, for me. Yeah, it's meant more for predominantly what, like teenage years, like preteen like preteen yeah Yeah. so obviously not everybody at the preteen age had the opportunity to go to paris i didn't i know that i was i don't know anyone that went to paris when they were a preteen somehow my freshman year i was voted president of the french club which i had no idea what i was doing where was that when we were in paris Uh, it wasn't because i (laughs) didn't know french 
And that's what the greatest irony of that was. I was the president of the club and spoke no French. But a little Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> that helped a lot, I'm sure. Well, it helped me read a lot of signs in, in French. It actually did. I was surprised. They're fairly similar words. Yeah, yeah. But that's all that I managed to read. Technically, that did hit my, like, minimum threshold of a thousand pages a week. So, like, it obviously was good, but it doesn't sound like a lot when it's just two books that you've read. Yeah. But this week, I'm going to hopefully read three books, and they're all kind of horror thrillers. So maybe I am cutting out of Christmas early to get back into Halloween. It's going to be weird for me this week. Obviously, I'm not going to be reading anything because we'll just be predominantly putting notes together for the movie yeah the order of phoenix movie yeah it's also kind of a long movie but i also remember being unsatisfied with it but we'll talk about that next next week week. yeah what i'm reading next week is the guest list by lucy foley which is a 2020 release i believe it came out in june and it's about these two like b-list or even c-list celebrities who are getting married on an island off the coast of western ireland and a murder happens. Oh, I was, I was hoping you were going to say an episode of Survivor begins. Off the coast of Ireland? Sure. It'd probably be a more intense game of Survivor, let's be it, honest. Less food, I would think. Less food and probably crazier cold weather. Yeah. yeah. There is cold weather. This wedding, I've already started, obviously. Yeah. This wedding takes place in June, and they're talking about wearing sweaters and stuff, and that's not my interpretation of June, so I obviously have never been to Ireland. No, you have not, because even in Scotland, as somebody who has been that far north in the summertime, it is still cold. I think it got down to like... That sounds perfect. It got down to like the 40s, I think, one of the nights we were up there, so it was just like... And obviously that's Fahrenheit. Yes, yeah. (laughs) Not... Not to be uh, misconstrued by anybody that might listen to us outside of the United States, where they use Celsius everywhere else. Yeah, but I'm surprised how much I like it so far. But I've only read one Lucy Foley book before, and it I liked parts of it, but on the whole, I didn't really enjoy it. And what I'm finding in this one is I'm actually really liking everything I've read so far. I'm about two-thirds of the way through the book. So I'll probably finish it in the next day or two. And I'm just sort of waiting for the shoe to drop where I'm like, yep, yep, I'm right about her. I'm never going to read her again. But so far, I'm actually liking it, which is a surprise because reviews in the past couple months have been coming in saying it's not great. So we'll see what ends up happening with that. And then the next one I am very excited to read is Vampires Never Get Old. Obviously, multiple authors in this one because it is a vampire anthology so it's short stories from 12 authors all about vampires which has been a pretty taboo subject since twilight ended i think it should stay there let's just be honest vampires can be done correctly i think when you throw glitter on them and try to make them kiss people that's a different story but let me pull up those authors real quick so they're really well-known authors and they're pretty popular right now the 12 authors are Zoraida Cordova, Natalie C. Parker, Samira Ahmed, Danielle Clayton, Tessa Gratton, Heidi Hellig, Julia Murphy, Mark Oshiro, Rebecca Roanhorse, Laura Ruby, Victoria Schwab, and Kayla Whaley. I just, that seems like a lot of people involved to make one book. It's 11 fresh vampire stories from young adult fiction's leading voices, based off what Goodreads says. So... It's really short, as well as under 300 pages, but it's a series of short stories, so they're supposed to be short. 
Are they supposed to be related to each other at least? Or is it they just they're be. all vampire based? You can have a running theme or it could just be it's got to have vampires in it and that's it. Right. So I don't know yet. We'll find out. But it's a 2020 release. It just came out at the end of September. So it's going to be probably my first full read in October. And I'm excited for that one. I also like how with short stories, they're more readily available to read just when you have five or ten minutes here and there. Yeah. You don't have to sit down and like commit the way you do with a regular novel. Yeah. So I could just read one story, move on and do something else and then come back and read it again, which is particularly great if you're having attention span problems with your reading, which I know a lot of people are right now in the time of Corona. Right. So it's a good option for that. And then the last book I'm going to try to get to next week is A Good Girl's Guide to Murder by Holly Jackson. It's a 2019 book, so it's technically a backlist. And this is only if I have the time for it, because who knows? Like, that page count between the three books isn't a lot, especially considering the guest list I've already read two-thirds of, but we'll see. But I don't know a lot about this, so I'm actually going to read the synopsis from Goodreads. The case is closed. Five years ago, schoolgirl Andy Bell was murdered by Saul Singh. The police know he did it. Everyone in town knows he did it. But having grown up in the same small town that was consumed by the murder, Pippa Fitz Amobi isn't so sure. When she chooses the case as the topic for her final year project, she starts to uncover secrets that someone in town desperately wants to stay hidden. And if the real killer is still out there, how far will they go to keep Pip from the truth? So... Murder mystery-ish, I assume. Sounds like it. But you have finally finished Order of the Phoenix. Yeah, I wrapped that up this week. Saturday, I think, you finished? Yep. So it's exciting to finally be done with it because obviously it is a large book. Yeah, I think this is, what, four weeks on for you? Yeah. But I believe this is going to be the longest book that you have to read for Harry Potter. So I think you're good now. It sounds so great. Let the me tell you. The next book is only 652 pages compared to the 870 <laughs> you just read. As somebody who doesn't read very often, and I think that's been the funniest part for some of the people that I've recommended the podcast to. They're just like, wait, you don't read books, but you're reading that long of a book? I'm like, well, yeah, yeah, doing it, that thing. It is um, a pretty chunky book, even for people who like to read. Yeah. They would consider it a chunky book, so I am proud of your commitment. Yeah, there were definitely some long nights and early mornings involved with reading this book, just because my work life, life is getting more and more hectic as we get to the end of the year, because that's just the way it is, usually. Yeah. Uh, Which is why I think it's going to take till the end of the year to watch all the movies and read all the books that we have left. Yeah. And I don't disagree with you. I think it's going to take long. I just, I'm hoping it's done by the end of the year for my sake. Because oh, yeah. I'd like to take at least a week or two off from reading somewhere in between all this. So. Right. Well, right now the plan is we're going to take the week of Thanksgiving off. So at that point, you could possibly get ahead of your reading before we come back from the Thanksgiving break. The realistic answer to that is I probably won't have time to read during the week of Thanksgiving. That and is that's also the reason possible. we're taking it off. Yeah. Your life gets too crazy that week and yeah. in Christmas season. Black Friday month is already hectic, let alone that weekend of Thanksgiving. Yeah. Uh, so. But let's discuss what you've read. So I wrapped up the book from chapter 30 on to 38 this week. So it doesn't seem like a lot of total chapters, but the page count was pretty Significant, high. Significant, yeah. yeah. 
There's one chapter in particular that's pretty long. I want to say it was in the 30 or 40 pages, which I don't think it got to 40, but it's pretty long for you, I think. I would say it's probably 32 just based on looking at my notes. It's kind of the <laughs> longest set of notes I have. 31 wasn't far off from that either, but yeah, it it just... There were times where I sat down and I'm like, okay, I'm going to read as much as I can right now. And you'd be like, well, how do you stop in the middle of a chapter? I go, for my sanity's sake. Like, it was the the only only way way. for me to do it. Especially with all the hockey that's been going on this week. It just kind of took away from it a little bit. Oddly, it has been a lot of hockey, despite the fact that there are only two teams playing. And they're playing each other. But that'll be over at the end of this next week. Yes, but yeah, I, I enjoyed what I read this week. It just, it was overwhelming amounts of information in a very short amount of time. Right, and I think you'll find that that sort of continues in the next two books, and I've never been someone who's really been critical of the series as a whole, but now that I've grown up and read the series like 20 or more times, definitely more than 20 times, I can see where some of the problems lie, and one of them is the fact that there's a certain thing that I can't tell you about because it's a spoiler. That Appreciate it. enough groundwork has not been laid prior to book five. Yeah. It starts the groundwork in five and then has to find a way to get all the way there to the end of seven. And partially I think this was on purpose and partially I think it wasn't. So I'm of two minds on that one, which is a waste of paper if you ask Fred. Fact. But chapter 30 started off with the final match between Ravenclaw and Gryffindor. And you just see kind of mopey Ron as always like, I just don't want to do this anymore. I've just gotten the crap kicked out of me all year. Like, I just, I'm not good at this. Stage fright is the worst. Well, I don't know if it's necessarily stage fright. It's It's, like actual fear of just sucking because he sucks. It's nerves. That's the problem. Because like they say in the book, he's actually good when he thinks no one's watching. Yeah. Particularly when his brothers are not watching. Which they're gone. I think anyone watching. They're gone. So like that's a little less pressure, I guess. Sure. Hagrid interrupts the match for Harry and Hermione and goes and introduces them to his half-brother in the middle of the forest. Yeah, the um, full giant. Yeah, Grop, which was kind of a weird name. but Well, at least that's what it sounds like when he says his name. Yeah. Who knows what it's actually supposed to sound like. And while he's English. walking out there, he's, like, telling the Harry and Hermione that he's teaching him English. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Like, why? I like that. That's silly. Yeah, it's weird for sure. I, I don't know. It, it seemed like a really weird chapter to me. Like, it, it it's obviously Hagrid being Hagrid to a T. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's always taking care of creatures of the magic world, including giants, as it turns out. Right. Which would definitely not be on most people's lists to take care of. No, and I think a lot of this is setting groundwork for the rest of the book. Like, you're meeting Grop so that you can later try to use him for another purpose. And you're seeing a conflict with the centaurs because that needs to be used for a purpose later on in this book. Well, thanks for jumping to that before I got I'm, to it all. I'm just saying there's laying the foundation for other yeah. things to happen. And like, in this that's, book, particularly. Right. Yeah. And so I think that's mostly what this chapter is for. It's even laying some groundwork for Hagrid to be like worried about his job. Yeah. Hagrid asks him on his way back out of the forest to take care of Grop if he gets fired by Umbridge, which... It's like, you're obviously going to get fired. Well, also, why are you asking children, 15-year-old children? To take care of a giant, yeah. Probably because you'll get in less trouble than if you went to, like, McGonagall or something. Yeah, 
Like, McGonagall's nice, but she's also very fair in the sense that, like, she she's follows strict. the rules. Yeah. Like, yeah. she follows the rules, and that's definitely against the rules to kidnap your half-brother. <laughs> yeah. And and then to bring the giant within range of the school. Right, right. Yeah. The kidnapping the half-brother thing isn't that crazy. Is it not? Not as crazy, I feel like, bad. as bringing a giant that could literally just slaughter all sorts of children <laughs> next to a school. I think Grop is kind of harmless, I want to say. Like, <laughs> the look you just gave me. He's not actually harmless, but, like, he doesn't do anything with ill intent. Is that better? I don't know if that's necessarily true. Like, he took a nice swing at Hagrid and at Harry and at Hermione. I tried to grab Hermione, I should say. I, I don't see anywhere in that part where it says anything about his intention, though. Yeah, but... I don't see any... It's at the reader's discretion, I guess. I, I don't see in the words on the page any ill intent. Yeah. Anyways, they come back from that, like, just like, what the hell just happened? Right, dazed. Yeah, they're so confused as to what's going on. And they hear people singing the Weasley is our king song again. And they're like, God, when are they going to stop treating him like that? Poor Ron. And then they don't even realize that, like, they're actually cheering him on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Now do you understand my little, where is it, sticker over here? Is it over there? I have the ribbons as well. I got a little sticker from LeakyCon that says yeah. Weasley is our king. Right. Now do you understand? Yeah, and then we also got the ribbon for sitting through that Ron Weasley. Sitting through makes it sound like that was a chore, but anyway. Well, for me it was because I didn't know any of the things that were going on. I might as well have just been sitting there and you could have been teaching me like nuclear physics and I wouldn't have understood it just as much at the time. I feel like it's not quite that bad. <laughs> it was pretty bad. I was so lost that day. I'll be honest, it, it was enjoyable, like it was fun, there were a lot of cool things that happened, but at the same time it was just like, I have no idea what any of these people are talking about. Right, So, right. I think I was predominantly used just because I had a bag that I could carry all the things in. <laughs> no one was using you. But, anyways, then we go into chapter 31 where Ron, or Hermione and Harry drag Ron out of the common room in order to try to break the news about Grop to him. Oh, and Ron got Grop back down to earth well and and ron the whole time during that conversation at first is like and then i did this did you see that happen or did you see when jenny did this and they're like hermione's like no 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 let we cut to the chase here we like, saw nothing we saw none of it we saw that first goal you gave up but after that that was all <laughs> we saw uh we weren't there and then breaks it down and ron's like a, a giant yeah. Like, what? Well, and I think he has a better understanding of why this is a problem than Harry and Hermione do, because they were both raised in the muggle world. Like, right. it's a concept that they can wrap their mind around, but the inherent fear isn't there the way it is for a wizard or witch. Yeah, of a wizarding family directly. Right, yeah. right. And then you have the owl exams starting to begin. You have the examiners arriving, and like they ask for Dumbledore, and Umbridge is like, well, he's not here right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let me go show you the teaching lounge. You'll like it there. You probably need something to eat or drink. Which was kind of an awkward scene because, like, everybody that was there while they were walking was like, we know where he is. He's not here. Yeah, yeah. You know. Also a little weird that they went to the lounge versus the Great Hall, which is right around the corner. Why wouldn't you just go eat at the head table? Yeah. Obviously, you have a lot of the exams taking place, and it's more about just kind of boosting Harry's confidence in himself, I think. Most of those scenes really seem to be, or he was realizing where he was falling short at the same time. So it was kind of like give, take, give, take, give, yeah. take. So 
I also like what it does for the world building. Yeah. Because this is a lot of the stuff that you don't normally see because Harry's going through so much junk that you don't see him in his class doing these certain types of magic. Yeah. And it comes time for the astronomy exam and they're up on the top of the castles, the ramparts. And Harry's sitting there trying to draw out his star map and sees the doors of the school open up and six people are just like full speed marching down towards Hagrid's house. And Hagrid lets him in. I'm like, at first I'm like, this doesn't look good for Hagrid. He's clearly getting fired, but maybe they're just there to escort him because he's a half giant. Right. You know, like to keep him from causing a scene and then all hell breaks loose. But my thing is, this should have happened during the day. The fact that they're creeping in the middle of the night. They didn't want anybody to see it like Trelawney's, that's why. Well, I mean, I feel like it's because Umbridge, who we've seen her have that sort of cruelty to her. I think it's because she wanted to be able to let some of that out on Hagrid because he is a mixed species or whatever you want to call a giant and a human mating. Which is also an important thing to remember. Right. So, like, she has a problem with anyone that's not a human 100%. And so, like, I think part of that is her trying to let out her bias and her cruelty and bigotry. Right. And not about necessarily trying to save him from having to have a scene made or whatever. Yeah, that is kind of a character point that comes around a lot during this book like the shot at lupin and so forth right during that attack everybody starts to notice what's going on down there and they see mcgonagall walking out there and four of the people use stun spells on mcgonagall it's like really four people four stunners straight i I can understand that with hagrid because he's half giant like they withstand magic better as you've explained to me right but like i could see that being a realistic motion of like controlling hagrid but it's like McGonagall's not half giant. So right. It should be a There's pretty... a chance they could have killed her. Like just a slight chance she could have died. Yeah, we'll just fathom if the fifth person had like stunned her, then she probably would be dead. It wouldn't be a stun, it would be murder. Right. Just because surely of her age, you know, like she's not young by any mean either, so And I think this is part of what you see when you see an authoritarian, like, regime like Umbridge, because they're going to do whatever it takes to get wherever they want to go, and remember that later on for other scenes, but she's willing to accept this violence against even humans, because McGonagall was going to get in her way. Right. Uh, After a long night of just chaos, because of his fear and wondering how McGonagall's doing and so on and so forth, where Hagrid is, all that kind of crap. Harry falls asleep the next day during his history of magic owl. Also because that class is boring. Yeah. Well, you have a ghost teaching it, so. You would think that would be exciting. Yeah. He has one of his vivid dreams of being in the Department of Mysteries again, this time as Voldemort, and he sees Sirius Black there with him, and he sees himself torturing Sirius. Well, Voldemort. Yeah, well, yeah. But, through Voldemort's eyes. Yeah. And when he comes out of it, he basically has fallen off of his chair and smacked into the, the concrete floors. And, like, he leaves the testing group and is basically like, I think I'm done anyways. So, like, I'm just going to go. And the, the examiner's like, are you sure you don't need to go to the hospital? And he goes, no. And he goes, okay, well, then just go lie down. 
And in the process, he runs to the medical wing, nonetheless, to be like, I need to tell somebody, you know, Sirius is in trouble, and runs to go find McGonagall, and McGonagall's not there. Well, she's at St. Mungo's. St. Mungo's. She was transferred, yeah. And then he decides, well, the only other person I could talk to, which, in my head, immediately, I was like, what about Snape, idiot? Like, go talk to Snape. Well, because you don't hate him the way Harry hates him. Yeah. I also realize he's serving a purpose with the order. You're also not a 15-year-old child. Mm-hmm. I think you need to stop making excuses for Harry. Secondly, um, we'll continue. Or I could just say he's unobservant, which is true from book one through book seven. That's just Harry's character trait. Okay. Uh, Anyways, we'll get back to what I was trying to say, which was that he does end up going to try to find Ron and Hermione so that he could tell somebody, right? Right, right. Come up with a plan, maybe. Yeah. And they all end up jumping into an empty classroom to have this conversation about what just happened and harry's just getting irate because like hermione's like it's a trap stupid it's clearly a trap don't be so dumb don't be so ignorant and he's like even if it is a trap they're still torturing Sirius. he's like losing his mind starts shouting so much so that Ginny and luna who are just wandering by are like we heard the ruckus and we came yet more people who heard his dulcet tone yeah so they all brain kind of like, I don't know, mash their brains together and come up with a plan to try to pull Umbridge away from her office again so that he can contact Sirius through the flu network and see if he's possibly still at 12 Grimmauld Place. Yeah. And the only issue is they didn't realize Umbridge had put some type of spell on the door to let her know whenever somebody goes through her into her office again. So that kind of backfires. And was it the Inquisitor team or squad or whatever they call themselves? The Inquisitorial squad. Yeah, the Inquisitorial squad. Basically Slytherins. Um, (laughs) Holding everybody hostage while Umbridge is questioning Harry. And she gets to the point where she's so fed up with him lying that... She's willing to use one of basically like the what's the term I'm trying unforgivable to curses. the unforgivable curses on Harry in order to get the answer from him, despite the fact that they're illegal. Yeah, and that kind of comes back around to her just willing to do anything and the authoritarian attitude that she takes with everything. So, yeah. but then Hermione's like, this is really where I saw Hermione be like over-the-top brave, like, just steps out of line and goes, I know he was trying to talk to Dumbledore, and it's about this. Right, and comes like, up with something on the spot. She took charge immediately, and it's just, like, brains plus, like, stone brass balls, I guess is the best way to put it. Like, she's she's over-the-top brave in that scene, I think. Like, especially after knowing that she was willing to go to that level of torture to, like, get the answer, it was like, whoa, there you go, Hermione. Suddenly there's a more physical reason to be afraid of her, like something that actually affects you personally. Right. Mm -hmm. So, basically, at that point, uh, I completely missed the part about Snape. That's kind of rough. That's fine. So, yeah, you missed that part about Snape, but he did come in and Harry tried to give him a message and Snape acted like, you're crazy, I don't know what you're doing. Well, he clearly got the message, as we find out later, but, like... The way it comes across to Harry as just Snape being Snape, like, not helping, getting in the way, being a problem, like usual. Right. But then Hermione does that little trick over Umbridge and gets her to follow her and Harry alone. Well, I think what's crazy about that scene is, like, Harry has to pretend, like, he knows where Hermione's going. Right, right. Like, could you imagine, like, oops, didn't make the left turn there with everybody else, then the plan goes to hell. That's why he's just one step behind her. Yeah, because otherwise that doesn't play off quite quite right. So they get, Hermione leads 
Umbridge and, and Harry into the forest and keeps wandering deeper and deeper into the forest. And Umbridge is like getting all caught up on everything, like how much further, when are we gonna get there type of thing. And then a bunch of centaurs show up, the herd of them. And that scene is so deliberately like the half human, half creature thing. Her bigotry. By definition is there. Like she's taking digs about how centaurs are lesser people and- With near human intelligence. Yeah. It's just like, you're digging your grave deeper and deeper, and you're just so stubborn, you're not even realizing it. So, right, right. Yeah. But the centaurs haul her off, which was an entertaining scene, to say the least. Right. But then Harry and Hermione find it themselves in just as big of a pickle as she was in, because they were basically just using them to... Like, get rid of her. Get rid of her. their yeah. problem. Yeah. Like, they're not supposed to be dealing with human problems. Right. You're just using them. Mm-hmm. But... Then Grop comes out of nowhere to save the day. So, like, that was an entertaining scene because it's like the centaurs knew he was in the forest, obviously, because they know everything that goes on in the forest for the most part, it seems. And they start shooting arrows at Grop, and Grop is just, like, mowing through them. Like, there's just nothing in the way. And it's all so that he can ask Hermione, or Hermie, as he calls her. Yeah. Because that's the way Hagrid introduced her to him, which... I always feel bad for Hermione because it seems like nobody knows how to say her name. Shy of the people that are, like, in the school. Like, right. that's it. It's like, you have Victor Crumb calling her something completely different as well, so. Hermoninny. Yeah. 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 They explained to Grop that, like, he went away for a little bit and they're like, we're out of here because he's too busy and distracted fighting off all these centaurs. And in the process of running out of the forest, they run into the rest of the group to find out that they were able to disarm all of the Slytherin students that were holding them hostage, basically. Right. Which I think is really funny. If I remember correctly, Neville's the one that, like, starts it all off, like, somehow. Between him and Ginny, I think, is who it was, because Luna was, like, distracted from everything that was going on, or was it the other way around? I want to say someone bit someone, and that started it, and I don't think that was Neville, but I don't no, remember. No, yeah, that probably wasn't Neville biting somebody. Because you don't really see it happen, you just hear about it happening. Yeah, which like, I didn't... secondhand story version of yeah. it. Yeah. And so Harry's like, we have to get to the Ministry of Magic, and everybody's like, how are we going to get there? We, we can't travel by flu powder. It's not safe. You know, we can't. Though I question that because now you've got Umbridge stuck in the forest. Why couldn't you use her flu Because network? you could have had spies somewhere within the network, like redirecting things possibly for Voldemort. Like that's what I always felt like anyways. Okay. But anyways, they they come across the, uh, gosh, what are the names of them right now? I, I had Thestrals. This Thestrals, yes. I almost called them kestrels, which is an actual bird, obviously. That's a bird. Yeah. Yeah. The thestrels. And it's just a funny scene because both, like, Neville and Luna and Harry can all see them. And everybody else is kind of like, what are you talking about? Like, Luna literally has to get off one of them to go help Ron get onto one. That's always really (laughs) funny to me. But, like, half of you can see them. That's a high statistic, technically. Because most people can't see Thestrals. But that statistic is much lower when the class is taught, obviously. Right, so, right. like, they ride the Thestrals into London proper, which I think is crazy. But I guess they're invisible to most people, so it really doesn't make well, too much of a difference. and as Hagrid said in his class, they're also very fast. Yeah. They and have to be to get from Scotland to London that quick. Yeah, they'd have to be really quick, like faster than a bullet train. Probably. Yeah. Either way, though, they get there, and I think the funniest scene from that, like, whole travel and then the entry into the 
Ministry of Magic is when they all cram into the phone booth. Because, <laughs> like, when it's just Harry and Mr. Weasley, it makes sense. Like, two people can fit in a phone it's booth. It's a little but like, tight, but it's okay. Yeah, but when you end up having, like, six people in a phone booth, even if it's children, that's tight. Yeah. Like, if you could even get the doors closed, I'd be impressed. It's like a clown car in there. Yeah. And then, like, it prints the badges while they're all in there, and it's like, here's yours, here's yours, here's <laughs> yours. Like, it's just ridiculous. That's such a kid thing, too, because I feel like I would say it just to get the box moving, but then I wouldn't, like, pass around the pins and stuff. Yeah. And then it's kind of weird. So, like, they, the automated system tells them that they're going to have to check their wands at security and all this stuff. And then but they get in there and there's no security. That should have raised a, like, big red flag. Yeah, for a normal human being. My brain was like, well, uh, he's either dead or... Obviously someone is here. Yeah, no matter what. Because clearly they don't just abandon post. Right. And it's like a ghost town in there, too. So it's just like there's nobody walking around. They get to the elevator. They take the elevator down to the Department of Mysteries, which is the lower level with like all the old courtrooms and stuff like that, too. It's so. technically the one above the courtrooms because okay. he had to go downstairs to get to the basement. Yeah. Or the sub whatever to get to the courtrooms. Yeah. So it's like the level above all the courtrooms. And then they walk in, which is definitely kind of weird because... Harry obviously has seen this in his dreams, but never in person. So he's like, I kind of know where we are. Right. And he only ever makes it to a certain point in his dreams. Like he never gets all the way as far as they go. Yeah. It also seems more straightforward in his dream than it does in reality. It seems like it's like one doorway to the next doorway and then you're there where you're supposed to be. Obviously, that's not the way it works. They go in through the first room. It's just completely black. There's nothing there. It's just dark. And then they leave the room. And then when they step out, everything swirls around them. Yeah, all the doors move. Yeah. And then they had some weird rooms. I tried not to go too in-depth on this because if you do listen to this, I don't want to give you, like, spoilers of the ending. Like, okay. 100%. Because I feel like I've spoiled a lot of books so far. But Hermione's smart enough to, like, mark the doors. She's showing her intelligence again yeah. over everybody else. Like, Why were you not in Ravenclaw? Yeah. Wait, right. that was a different scene. Yeah. And so they go through a couple different rooms. You have the one with the brains in a, like, more or less a pool of water. Like, right. Which was kind of weird. Like a tank of water, I guess, is really the right yeah, term. Yeah, a tank of liquid. And then you also have the room where you have, like, these giant stone steps that go down to this archway that has a black veil hanging from it and when you got close to the veil harry noticed that you could like hear voices and stuff like that so like that's kind of creepy but the only ones who ever actually heard it were harry and luna it's one of those things where he's like is it just because luna's crazy what's happening yeah or is it just because like we both have experiences with death well you would think neville would hear something at that point but neville didn't get all the way down next to it though supposedly so they eventually figure out where they're going. They get through the right room to the the long hall with glass orbs is the best way to describe it. It basically just goes... Well, and it's like, it's not just orbs. You have like a bunch of huge giant things that are holding all these orbs. So right. they're creating hallways with the structures that are holding these things. Right. And they finally get down to 97. Harry doesn't realize anything about it. It just keeps on going down. Like, I haven't found Sirius yet. He's got to be here somewhere. Right. And Ron's like, hey, stupid, come here and read this. 
I thought it was kind of funny because like it's like finally Ron's paying attention to the little details and <laughs> catches something like that. Yeah. Because that's not something you really see Ron do too often, except for like maybe when he was playing like wizard's chess and. He does have a mind for stuff like that, I think. I think he just doesn't often use it in reality. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm like, it's not very well seen in the books enough. Like, that's for sure. But as he goes to grab it, the Death Eaters appear. He hears a voice behind him going like, thank you for picking that up type of a situation. We weren't going to be able to do it ourselves. Yeah. They start explaining why to him and all that stuff. It also explains things that have happened to, like, very minor characters earlier in the books. Yeah, as to why they weren't able to pick it up and why what happened to them happened. happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It basically becomes a standoff because Harry's like, I'll break it. I don't care. Yeah, yeah. And and the Death Eaters like, don't do that. We have to get him, but we can't hurt him because then that'll fall and then we can't have it. Yep, and then we'll all get killed by Voldemort. So, like... He will be most displeased. Yeah. And I don't really want to leave it there. Like, obviously the ending is fantastic, but at the same time, if I go any further, I'm spoiling literally the ending of the book. Well... To an extent. We've spoiled the end of several Harry Potter books, so I think we should keep going. Okay. Well, in that instance, I do have notes for it. So, we'll Well, continue. spoiler warning. Yeah. As if the whole series hasn't been a spoiler yeah if you are listening to any of the episodes related to the end of books we're sorry we didn't give you the warning before but here it is we'll just do one at the top of every episode yeah so they basically are in that standoff and harry's like trying to find a way to get out of the situation and he manages to persuade or like to tell everybody in his group to just basically aim at all these things on the walls and try to create a distraction so that they can get away and the way I literally described it in my notes was uh, the chase scene begins, <laughs> a.k.a. the Scooby-Doo multiple door situation. That's a good way to describe it. Because it's really, right? It's totally that scene. Only it makes more sense because this is like a magical world. Like it's more possible <laughs> yeah. in the lore. Like it's set within the standards. But like people are going in and out of doors and like the world is like, or the rooms are spinning around and like it's just... It's such a Scooby-Doo style scene. That, yeah, like, yeah it, that makes a lot of sense. That was it. the first thing that my brain went to when I was seeing that. I'm like, oh, this would totally be a good episode of Scooby-Doo. What's funny is I loved Scooby-Doo as a kid. I loved this as a kid. And I never made that sort of like link. Oh, there you go. All it takes is a 31-year-old husband to figure that out for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do like seeing all the different types of magic as they go through all the different rooms. And I was going to break all that down, but it felt like it was so dense is, if I did. It is a lot. I will mention the one thing that I think does need to be mentioned because I never hear it mentioned anywhere. And it's the part where, for some reason, Ron's kind of addled and not in his right mind. So he summons the brains to him from the room with the brains. Yeah, osseo brains, and it starts strangling him. Right. And it's strings of memories are coming out and attaching to his arms and leaving a bunch of wounds. And later it gets brought up that memories can leave the deepest scars. And that's very significant about, like, depression and all these mental health things that I never hear anyone bring up as like an allegory for mental health. Yeah, but it makes a lot of sense. And it makes a lot of sense. And also I never see it later on, despite the fact that he's said to still have these scars. Yeah. And so like Harry still 
has that scar on his hand from all those detentions with Umbridge and Ron's got these scars on his arm from all those memories attacking him. And at the very least, these are things that I think need to maintain their reality in Harry Potter because it needs to be more okay for people to have these flaws and specifically related to Ron's having them from mental health problems. Yeah. Like it you always need to seek mental health if you're in a point where you think you're going to do something to hurt yourself, obviously. My point is more along the lines of whatever you've been through is okay, and you can still come out the other side having physical scars, mental scars, whatever. You're still a person worth being and still a person worth seeing. But after this book, you don't really see it. It's mentioned briefly later on, and that's it. And it's like, that's a very important message to send to children or people who are reading these books yeah i think that probably goes over most people's heads at the age that people would normally read harry potter as for sure right but i think it's one of those things that when you're a child and you see yourself on tv or in shows or like some version of some aspect of you you feel more complete and more understood and more whole and i think people who have mental health problems need that and i think it's glossed over the allegory here a lot of the time Definitely can agree with that. And I'm off my soapbox now. Okay. Um, so we're back to the story. It gets to the point where basically these guys all get cornered together. Um, most of them are really incapable of fighting anymore. Obviously, Ron is wrapped up by the brain, so like he's not doing anything. I'm struggling with that. Um, both Luna and Hermione are more or less just frozen. Incapacitated. Like they're, yeah, they're not, they're not capable of fighting. Same thing with Ginny. And so it basically is just Neville... And Harry at this point, and they're basically surrounded. Then the cavalry arrives, so you have the order show up and start wrecking stuff. And the fight is going pretty much both way until the heavyweight arrives of oh, Dumbledore. Yeah. Dumbledore comes in and just starts r- literally just like lassoing people up. <laughs> like I, it, it felt like the most cavalry. It felt like the most Texas scene I've ever heard <laughs> in my entire life. Like straight up rodeo style lassoing magic you know to bundle them all up and in the process of that harry sees bellatrix and sirius breaking down in like a duel of like family right to the death as it turns out spoiler we've already warned for spoilers no need to do yeah and it's kind of going both ways like nobody's really winning the fight like everybody's avoiding each other's magic and then bellatrix catches him with one and he falls into the veil and Harry tries to go grab him, and Lupin's like, dude. Holding him back, yeah. You you just saw him vanish into thin air. Like, what makes you think you're going to be able to go in there and get him and bring him back? And he goes, well, I can hear voices. And he's like, that's great, but... Well, I think it also speaks to the relationship they have where his rational brain isn't even working anymore. There's something wrong with Sirius. I have to go save him. And, like, I think logically he understood that he couldn't go through that veil and save him and himself from whatever's on the other side. But subconsciously he felt like he needed to still do it. Right. Yeah. And the animal brain took over. And in the process of that, you see Bellatrix trying to escape. And Harry's like, to hell with that. While Dumbledore is wrapping up the last of the the crew of uh, Death Eaters. And so Harry chases her, sees that he's, she's getting on an elevator and she's going up to the main floor the lobby. And so he's like, next elevator, next elevator, right. next elevator. Trying to catch on it. her. They have a little duel themselves around all the figures in the lobby. Uh, I shouldn't say figures, statues, because they're large. Yeah, um, from the Fountain of Brethren. 
which is a load of bullcrap if I've ever seen it. But yeah. it's just, that was an intense scene. And then, like, if I remember correctly, Dumbledore kind of gets there first, pins her down with one of the statues. Right. And then Voldemort appears. But a significant thing happens before Dumbledore appears. While they're dueling, Harry's trying to use unforgivable curses on her. Yeah. And she's like, here's a lesson for you. You have to actually mean them. And, like, not just a righteous anger. Yeah. And so, like, that's where the theory that you couldn't just say Avada Kedavra instead of Abracadabra and accidentally kill someone. Yeah. And so, as well, too, you have the part where you can, like, Harry's like, well, I... The prophecy's broken. You can't bring anything to Voldemort anyways. Yeah. And she's like, you didn't. Like, I'm going to kill you now for sure. Like, you know, then at least he'll be happy about that. And Dumbledore appears, uses one of the statues to pin her to the ground, which I thought was just funny as all hell. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, you're such a big, strong magician and this random statue is just holding you down now. You can't do squat about it. Right. Well, I think that also shows a creativity towards Dumbledore's magic. Like, he's not just learning things in class, doing them, and then that's all the magic he knows. Like, he's more inventive than that. Yeah, he's definitely creative in the sense of what he's using it for. Right. Then Voldemort appears, and you start to see their duel going back and forth. Voldemort gets to the point where he's about to land a Havada Kedavra spell on... Dumbledore and Fox shows up and just eats it. <laughs> I yeah. thought that was the weirdest thing. I'm like, well, wouldn't that still kill Fox? But I, then I'm like, wait, he's a phoenix. So if he right. dies, he just gets reborn. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, uh, okay. Smart. Everyone needs a phoenix friend. Yeah, clearly to take that death. But that scene starts to go back towards a kind of weird, creepy vibe where um, Voldemort like possesses Harry and right. starts speaking through Harry's body. And it's like, well, you could just kill, you could end it right now, Dumbledore. You can just kill, kill Harry's, kill body, Harry's body and and I'll be gone forever. And Dumbledore's like, I'm not stupid. I'm not going to fall for that crap. <laughs> you know, like I was born in the morning, but not this morning, you know. <laughs> and so the auras and Cornelius Fudge start to arrive and apparate. And Dumbledore's like, poof, I'm out of here. He apparates over to Bellatrix and then apparates the two of them far, far away to wherever they're safe, obviously. But just seeing Dumbledore and Voldemort, Cornelius Fudge is like, okay, you were right. Yeah, you can't deny it anymore. Yeah, you just saw it with your own two eyes and so did all the Aurors that were there. Right. At the same time. But that kind of leads you to believe that like, we now know Voldemort's strong, but we know that he's not strong enough to face all the Aurors that were there, clearly. like He's not all-powerful yet. That is a theory there's also the theory of he's just getting out of the situation to go do something else like he could have done it but didn't need to do it because he had other things in the works right and at the end of that chapter you have dumbledore creating that port key illegally right in front of the minister of magic which i thought was priceless he's like listen i don't even care anymore i'm i am the boss now (laughs) i am the captain now (laughs) Like, I'm not taking over your role, but you're not going to do anything to me about this. Right. And then let me listen out, like, my requirements of what's going to come from this. Because now you believe me. And, like, Umbridge needs to leave. And, like, just starts... The Ministry of Magic needs to basically ban all these decrees that they've been making, you know? And... I get to come back to the school and be headmaster. Yeah. Yeah. And Harry ends up porting to 
Dumbledore's office, which is locked from the outside. Yeah. So he's just stuck there, which is, like, honestly a pretty funny scene. Yeah. Like, he's just sitting around looking at, like, all these paintings of previous headmasters and headmistresses on the walls. And most of them are just sleeping because <laughs> it's so late at that point, so... Or is it early? It's technically early because, like, it does make reference to the sun coming up eventually in later on in the chapter after right. this. The next scene is definitely Dumbledore trying to handle Harry's strife the best that he really can. And I could go into details about it, but again, it's just, like, it's just so much. Basically, he's explaining to Harry, like, this is why this year has been the way it's been. This and is, this is why your life has been the way it's been. This is why your life has happened this way. And here are the things that I have done to sort of make your life happen in this way. And also affected it in the positive and negative ways. Right. He owned up to both sides of it. Right. And you'll learn more about Dumbledore later that kind of explains why he's so willing to take on both the positive and negatives of his actions. Right. But I think it also is about laying foundation for like later things like setting things up for later books i was gonna say i'm like i don't know how much more later things we can get that was pretty much the end of the book (laughs) it's letting harry but also the reader know about things that will happen throughout the series and we will avoid those spoilers because like he obviously goes over what the prophecy means and who provided it and all that stuff but like I, i feel like it's not really necessary for you to understand it from what i'm telling you like you'll read it and then you'll be like oh this it's probably better that I didn't give you everything. But in the second, so basically the last chapter, Harry again is more or less internally dealing with his strife after all that. And Ron's like, are you coming down to the final feast? And he goes, no, I'm just going to keep packing. Uh, I want to be alone. And then he finishes packing and goes, well, I'm going to go find one of the ghosts and maybe they can help me find Sirius. Right, because he thinks that Sirius would return as a ghost, which... Well, he thinks all wizards and witches return as ghosts at at that point. Well, I think he understands that not all do, but all have the ability to, I think, is the understanding he comes to with that conversation. Yeah, And he gets frustrated with Nearly Headless Nick, is who he has that conversation with. Nearly Headless Nick basically explains, like, what you were saying. Not everybody chooses to become a ghost, and sometimes people don't even have the choice either. Right. It's about this inherent fear that they have about dying and passing over to the other side. And if you understand Sirius as a character, just from what you have from book three to book five, you understand that's not Sirius. Yeah. And so I think that's sort of when it all kind of clicks for Harry that he's right. Yeah. You know, Sirius isn't coming back. And in the process of it, frustration, he runs out of the room and ends up running into Luna. And Luna dumps a little bit of wisdom on him, too. Um, which, Do you understand why I love Luna well, now? Well, firstly, Luna is looking for her things at random places in the castle because people steal her stuff and hide it, which is she totally jacked deserve. up. In her own, like, common room and people house. People from her own house. Yeah, it's or ridiculous. stealing from her. Yeah. And she goes, it all turns up on the last day anyways. It's like, that's so messed up. Right. At least she gets her stuff back. And then secondly, if you know it's going to come back, why are you looking for it? <laughs> To remind people they need to give her stuff back. I guess. (laughs) But she also explains, like, the part where they're hearing the voices behind the veil. And she basically is like, I'm pretty sure those are, like, dead wizards and witches, more or less. Yeah. And kind of breaks that down for Harry. And so it's like, you really understand that that veil is kind of like the crossing over point, almost, to an extent. 
like I don't know that like if you cross into it you're immediately dead but like it's where the dead people go if they don't become ghosts more or less kind of yeah and I think she makes a good point to Harry and it's that we're still gonna see them again and Harry's like no we're not because he just had that conversation with Nick yeah. But it's like, you heard them. Yeah. We, all, we both heard them. They're there. They're not gone forever. And right. so, like, that, I think, helped give him a sense of peace. And, like, most people wouldn't say that Luna is book smart or whatever. But she's very good at a minimum with interpersonal relationships. Yeah. And she's very smart when it comes to, like, emotional intelligence. Even if she believes in the blippering homedinger or the crumplehorn snorkak. <laughs> All the made-up nonsense that her dad's paper writes about. Right. Which is why Luna is one of my favorite characters. Yeah. I I thoroughly enjoyed Luna as a character in this book. And, like, we can wrap it up. Obviously, they they get to King's Cross and the Order basically threatens. Threatens. Like, yeah. The Dursleys, yeah. Yeah, the Dursleys. That's what it is. Yeah. But as a character, I think during this book, I really liked the character plot between Harry and Cho, like the up and downs, like that kept things entertaining. Yeah. And then you also had a lot of like the the DA meetings, the Dumbledore Army meetings. I thought that was really neat. Obviously, like the mental health bit was like a big chunk of this book. Like you really see Harry going down into the deep end of emotions that he doesn't know how to deal with. Right. And he's a lost 15 year old boy. And I think the point that kind of like drives something home in me as an adult that didn't when I was a kid is that he's made to be that way. Yeah. And, like, it isn't something that just happens. And, like, outside of saying that, I can't really explain it any better. He's just, in every book, in every situation he's put in, there has been one or more people who have tried to make him that way, however he ends up. Yeah. His his life is kind of directed, like, he makes choices, but it's more or less controlled to an extent. Right. Other people have a bigger say in his own life. It's like he's riding a roller coaster. He doesn't have any say in it, but he's in the car. Yeah. And as an adult, that's like really hard to see the adults in Harry's life just constantly failing him. Yeah. Like, I think the one thing that he really does have control over is if you're referencing it to a roller coaster is how fast and how slow he's going through certain things. Like, and that's really about it. And it's usually not the way you want it to go. So, like, there's times where he's going very fast to things that he should be taking his time to, to deal with. Yeah. yeah. And, and vice versa, for that matter. There's times where it's like, why are you going slow right now? You could just zip through this. Like, it should be easy. So. Well, everyone's mental health is different. but Obviously, yeah. I think these are all themes that kind of run through the book series as a whole. Like, mental health. Like, with book three, you had the Dementors representing depression. And then I think this one's a big point about PTSD and trauma. And I don't think that fully gets explored or ever explained the right way. But as someone who's reading it critically, I can see where the allegory kind of lays. Yeah. And I think that's sort of always been an important theme for the author throughout these books. But I I definitely enjoyed the book. I thought it was good. I just... The taxing of, like, the anxiety from Cho Chang and Harry relationship and then the mental health stuff, like, it weighed heavy on you as a reader as you're going through it at times. This is a heavier book, yeah. So it doesn't also mean that, like, obviously the amount of pages and then that heaviness, it's just, like, it's a lot. It is. Especially if you're not used to reading a lot. Yeah. And, like, 
if you're not used to reading a lot, an 870 page book is a lot. If you're not used to reading a lot, like that much like packed into that many pages is a whole lot. Yeah. And obviously I'm not going to do like ratings on the books until we get to the end of them and just kind of go through them at that point. But like, it was still a good book. I just right. don't, I'm not going to put it in my top group. I don't think like. And that's how I feel about this one. Like it's not in my top two out of these seven. Yeah. But I also don't think it's in my bottom two. Maybe? I wouldn't either. I, so far, but again, I haven't read the last books, so right. it could, could end up there. I don't know. But right now I wouldn't put it in my bottom two. Yeah. And, and I've only read five of them, so, you know. Pretty good system, then. Yeah. But this week will be an easier week overall. Yeah, we're going to watch Order of the Phoenix, and I will take copious amounts of notes, as always. And I will take maybe a quarter to half a page worth of notes and just mentally lock it all up in my brain. If only. And possibly if we are watching it the day we are watching it, we might even just record it that night after we're done watching it and just kind of maybe keep it fresh in our memory. That could be good. Yep. There um, might be popcorn sounds, though, at that point. Yeah, yeah, there's a chance. But thank you guys so much for listening. I know that this is a pretty long episode. Yeah, and and it kind of goes along with how dense the book is. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, so it makes sense. We'll see you guys next week at the beginning of the week for the sports episode. Followed up with the book episode. But in the meantime, make sure you check out all the social media, which will be linked in the show notes. And we'll catch you next week, guys. Bye. Bye.